This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real live insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? Happy Friday. This is day five of the Docs Outside the Box virtual summit. It has rolled really fast. But you guys are reaching out to me, letting me know through Instagram and through email how much you've been really enjoying these last four days. Now, listen, over these last four days, you've heard from my guests. And the key thing about them is that they have recognized that normal just wasn't enough. They wanted more. And because of this, you know, they've been able to push back on the traditional ways of thinking. And as a result, they have been able to find peace. Who doesn't want that, right? They've been able to find happiness. And to some extent, they've been able to find wealth from changing and pushing back on the traditional ways of thinking. But today, you're going to be hearing about the science, the research behind changing, making behavioral decisions, what makes us tick mentally as individuals, particularly how we interact with each other. And one thing that I've always wanted to know about people who have been really successful is, is how do you change behavior? How do you predict behavior to be more successful? So with my next guest, and I'm totally geeking out about this because I'm really excited, I've got a superstar in the field of behavioral research, and her name is Vanessa Van Edwards. She is the author of the national best-selling book called Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People. I have read this book. I've recognized some things about myself. This is a must-read book. I'm telling you all, y'all need to get this. She's also developed a science-based framework on how to understand different personalities and how we can use this to improve how we communicate with our colleagues, clients, customers, and for us as physicians, our patients. She's worked with entrepreneurs. She's helped growing businesses, as well as some trillion-dollar companies, you know, really take their interactions to the next level. She's been featured in a whole bunch of different media. She's been featured on CNN, BBC, CBS, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, USA Today, and so much more. Not only that, millions visit her website called scienceofpeople.com every month. Hundreds of thousands of people have taken her communication courses on Udemy, Creative Live, LinkedIn, as well as her flagship course, The People School. So all of this to say she's a big deal, but she's mad cool. And she has also done work with doctors and how we think and how we make certain decisions. So she's coming on the show. 
And we're going to talk about some scenarios, specifically some scenarios around how to handle imposter syndrome. I know some of you all, I have suffered from this. We're going to talk about physician burnout. We're also going to talk about how to be more likable with your colleagues, how to be more likable with your coworkers without being a pushover. This is going to be a big one. This is the home run, guys. I'm really excited for y'all rolling with me over these last five days of the Docs Outside the Box virtual summit. Listen, make sure you share this episode with someone who you think can definitely benefit from this. Let me stop talking and let's get on with this interview. Let's get it. Hey, Vanessa, welcome to Docs Outside the Box. I'm so excited that you're on the show. How are you doing? I'm so good. Thanks for having me. Really excited about this. You have been all over on news, digital news, on CNN, YouTube, anywhere that we can find you, you are there, mainly talking about the science of people, the science of succeeding with people with your book, Captivate, which is something that I'm utilizing to help me get over some social anxiety that I've had to come to terms with. So I'm really excited to bring you on to kind of talk about how doctors interact with doctors and how doctors just interact with people in general and how we can improve our interactions. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so honored to be here and I love working with doctors. So the funny thing is I do all these workshops and one of my most common workshops is for healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses. Yes. Because a lot of the time people think that PQ equals IQ. So we grow up thinking about book smarts, GPA, SATs, all these acronyms for book smarts. And so we double down on the, and so very, very highly intelligent people who are at the top of their field, very often healthcare professionals, especially doctors, have focused all their energy on their IQ and very little energy on their PQ. So they've flown through school, flying colors, gotten to the top medical schools, are saving lives, literally the hardest thing we can do. But when it comes to the people side of things, first impressions, bedside manner, professional charisma, networking, building a practice, hiring, making small talk, delivering bad news, All of those are brand new skills. So I love, love, love working with doctors. Yeah, you just had that like all in a nutshell. (laughs) There's so many doctors right now who are like, she gets me. (laughs) I get you. I get you. You know, so there's so many different facets with docs and the IQ versus EQ, you know, that we can basically take the shell off of. And I'm really interested because there's one thing that you talked about, particularly with facial expressions, ability to tell what's a real smile versus a fake smile and so forth. You know, I want to get your thoughts on this because particularly with OB doctors, they've noticed this a lot. How does facial expressions work in terms of the science? Does that work across cultures? So for example, like women of different cultures, if you ask an OB doctor, right, women of different cultures, they can come in looking either very stoic when they're about to deliver or very dramatic with pain. And oftentimes they'll say like, depending on which culture they come from, you can pinpoint how they're going to act. So is there this facial expression science, is that the same across cultures? Great question. So when we look at facial expressions, there's actually a very interesting distinction. Facial expressions are expressions that are held for longer than 1 25th of a second. Under 1 25th of a second is a micro expression. So this is a very important difference, especially when it comes to true emotions, deception, and pain. Microexpressions are what they were discovered by Dr. Paul Ekman, who's a very famous researcher in this area. And he found that under 125th of a second, people cannot control their facial expressiveness. It is simply an innate reaction to some kind of emotional stimulus or pain. So if someone is disgusted by something, they will very quickly flash the microexpression of disgust, which you can try it with me. It's when you raise your nose up. So 
kind of crinkle your nose as if you're smelling something bad and flash the upper whites of your teeth and then say, Ugh. Ugh. That, yeah, that is this micro expression of disgust. This is we cannot I wish we had a video. <laughs> I know, but you know what? Actually, sometimes it's better to just try it. Like if you're just listening, yeah. just pull your nose and your face up, you'll actually begin to feel a little grossed out if you keep that expression. I've had students tell me they actually feel like vomiting if they do that for too long. And that's because our emotions are a feedback loop. What's really important about this is we absolutely can control our facial expressions and our facial expressiveness. So in some cultures that value stoicism, that value concealing emotions because they're considered distracting or dramatic or whatever it is, they absolutely can work to control those facial muscles. However, that innate instinct, that very, very quick flash of an expression, that is real. And so far, Paul Ekman has discovered seven universal microexpressions, and there actually isn't one for pain. This is what's really important. Really? Yeah. You asked specifically about pain. And so pain does not have universal expression. So that could be different across cultures if someone has learned to disguise it. The seven that you should know that I talk about for an entire chapter in the book, happiness, my favorite, surprise, fear, disgust, anger, sadness, contempt. So those are the seven that are universal. None of those are pain. So you might see disgust, you could see anger, but pain is a really funny one, especially if people have different pain responses or tolerances. Oh yeah, we definitely see that. In medicine, we call that, you know, one of the more important vitals. Obviously, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, things that you can actually measure. But now we're starting to realize that pain is actually a vital sign also. So we look at it in terms of their facial expression also. So very interesting. Now, you started you know, when you introduce your working with physicians and other medical professionals have high achieving, type A type personality. So I'm really interested in this. So there are a lot of people, I suffer from this, where you kind of climb the ranks of going through education, becoming a doctor and so forth, becoming a nurse, whatever you may be. And there's a point where once you actually are practicing on your own, there's this moment of having that quote unquote imposter syndrome. You know, what is up with that? Can you talk mm-hmm. to us about that? Yeah. So I think that imposter syndrome, it's a very real phenomenon. It's not something that's made up or fake. And what's interesting about it is I once heard my good friend, Judy Holler, she's another author. She described imposter syndrome as basically, if you're feeling imposter syndrome, it means that you're leveling up. Okay. And that was a completely different perspective on imposter syndrome because usually they don't like their imposter syndrome. They're like, oh, it's a symptom of my inadequacy. It's a symptom of my lack of confidence. But actually, think about it this way. And I hope I can reframe imposter syndrome now forever. If you feel imposter syndrome, it probably means that you're learning something new, trying something new, or in a situation that's challenging your knowledge or your boundaries. Isn't that how we grow? Isn't that how amazing achievers, people who are making real changes and impact are doing every day? In fact, the more often you feel imposter syndrome, the more often you're leveling up, trying new things, challenging your boundaries. And so I actually think that Imposter syndrome means you're doing something right. It means you're really trying to make a bigger impact and that's scary and that's okay. I really like that frame. It makes it go from feeling like you're powerless to something that makes you feel like you're empowering yourself because yes. I'm not going to lie to you, imposter syndrome, I've suffered from it. Like you've spent all these years training and then all of a sudden you go into a patient's room and you're like, maybe they're going to think that I'm too young or maybe they're going to think that I can't do this or you know, X, Y, Z, women stuff that do this. I mean, it can be debilitating, but your frame of reference really is empowering. I love it. I mean, imagine if you were in the kind of professional situation where you felt confident in what you did every day, it means that you're probably too comfortable. I mean, honestly, or you're not thinking critically about a diagnosis or a communication, or you're thinking too basic about who you're seeing. So I actually think it's a symptom of good. 
Hey docs, there's a saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Now's the time to define your future by being a part of the Physician CEO program. Physician CEO is a business immersion program developed by MBA faculty from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. You're getting an intensive MBA style education made up of modules that cover topics like leadership, entrepreneurial ventures, and everybody's favorite, branding. And guess what? This program is designed for busy physicians like yourself who don't have time for an MBA, but still want to be a better version of yourself. Trust me, the program gets you in focus from day one. So get those skills needed to lead a hospital or start a new venture. You're always going to ensure that there's an open seat waiting for you at the table. Don't miss this opportunity because class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Next question I have is, is, and doctors are starting to go through this with physician burnout. Doctors are starting to learn to speak up for themselves, even though their partners or if they're in a group of other physicians, they may not want to talk in a collective spirit. People are learning to speak up. Like, how do you get comfortable when you're in a group type of environment, but you need to speak up on unpopular work issues, working 24-hour shifts, working sometimes 36-hour shifts? How do you help people get through those type of situations? So I actually want to talk about burnout first, because I think that actually understanding our own burnout allows us to talk about it. So the very first thing is the reason we don't talk about a lot of those issues is because we feel we're either not being strong enough. Oh, I'm the complainer. I'm like, you know, everyone else is doing it. Why can't I do it too? Or that it's not real. Your feelings aren't justified. So they actually did a study on, this is from the Stress Research Institute, and they looked at people in burnout, people who said, I feel burnt out. And the biggest problem with feeling burnout is you doubt it. You literally have imposter syndrome about your own burnout. You're like, is this just me? Everyone else seems to be doing okay. Thousands of other professionals have done it. Why do I experience it? So they found that when people are in burnout, they found that in their brain, they have an enlarged amygdala and a thinner prefrontal cortex. Specifically, they could recognize people in burnout different from the control based on the amygdala and the PFC. This is really important because we know that the amygdala and PFC specifically cause moodiness, bigger stress response, less cognitive functioning, which is the last thing that doctors need, right? Difficulty learning, less creativity, and difficulty with memory and problem solving. So burnout is not made up. It actually can be recognized in our brain. Here's the good news. This is specifically related to doctors. So Cornell Medical College, they decided to look at this burnout research and see if they could reverse it, right? Okay, so it makes impact in your brain. Is that forever? How does the brain change or reconstitute itself? So they took a group of stressed out medical students whose brains showed many of those burnout symptoms or impairments. They put them through an anti-burnout program. The anti-burnout program was actually a lot easier than you would think. And this was after only four weeks in the program, they found that many of the changes in their brain were reversed. And most importantly, by four weeks, they had stopped experiencing the negative side effects of burnout. The good news is that one, your feelings are real and they should be taken quite seriously. And the biggest thing we can do for ourselves is not ignore our burnout. The longer you ignore it, the worse your PFC and amygdala do, the worse the symptoms. So the moment you're beginning to feel burnt out, the best thing you can do for an anti-burnout program is actually to know exactly how you recharge. The worst thing that people can do is they ignore it or they think, well, I'd like to recharge, but I have no idea how. Maybe I'll watch 10 hours of Netflix. Maybe I'll just sleep all weekend. Right. And the problem is that creates all kinds of downward spirals. So the best thing we can do, notice it right away, 
and then know how you recharge. Docs, you guys heard that? That's great. This is great information. Wow. Wow. So then how do they, like, once you recognize this, you mm-hmm. want to do something about it. Oftentimes people go externally, like, well, maybe I'll spend less time at work or like you said, do some exercise. Or what, what about work? Like, how do you bring that up and get the strength to speak up on things when you know the group, like you said, is going to say, well, why can't you suck it up or anything like that? Mm-hmm. So I think that the most important thing here is to actually share the science. Mm-hmm. So this is how I share. Yeah. I mean, like use me as your scapegoat, right? Be like, I was listening to this great podcast and I heard that there's actually some very interesting research on burnout because I think that what's really hard is sharing a vulnerability with no justification (laughs) or no evidence. And so one of the best things, one of the easiest ways to do this is to actually just share knowledge. Talking about knowledge and research can lead to discussions about emotion and vulnerability and feelings. So if you can, if it's possible, I would share this work, share this podcast, share this study, and then begin to say, does that feel right to you? Have you ever experienced that yourself? I certainly have. So there's two steps to this. One, I always like to use research or knowledge as a jumping off point. The second is to be able to then use that as a way to share vulnerability first. Reciprocity absolutely works when it comes to emotions and knowledge. We know that if you give a small gift, you're more likely to get a small gift back. The same thing works with information. If you share a vulnerability, you're more likely to get vulnerability back. The biggest mistake that people make though is they start with vulnerability. And that that can sometimes make people feel like, I don't know, that's not me. But if you start with science or knowledge or research, and then you share a vulnerability, like the most powerful thing you could say in a group is, you know, I listened to this podcast. And they shared that burnout is actually has symptoms in the brain, the PFC and the amygdala, which affects our cognitive thinking, our work, our moodiness, how we think on the job. And what they found was, is that actually you can reverse these brain changes with recharging. I don't know about everyone here, but I have definitely felt that if I ignore a symptom of my burnout, it absolutely catches up with me a week to two weeks later. Just yesterday, I was realizing that I have not XYZ enough. And that has absolutely come out in my work. I have no idea if anyone else is experiencing this, but can we find a way to prevent this earlier? Can we find a way to talk about this? Mm. That's a much more way for people to understand it. I love it. You know, one thing too, that I think is really interesting. I think part of the reason of the show is for us to kind of just realize like our inner greatness as physicians, right? There's stuff that you can do in the book. Then there's things that you can do outside. I really want to get your opinion on this. I know your time is short, but this thing really fascinates me, particularly the group trait that makes doctors feel inadequate. So high achievers, Mm -hmm. back to that whole notion, right? So for example, doctors who are spending most of the time being a master on the human body, but then there's also the business side of medicine. And oftentimes doctors will say, well, I didn't learn this in medical school, so I'm going to shy away from the business side. Mm -hmm. Whereas... What do you say about that quality trait whereas business people who don't know anything about medicine, don't know anything about how the human body works, they don't say, well, I didn't go to medical school, so I can't really manage a hospital. Or How does that work? Like, how is it that they're able to be successful, but docs feel like they can't be successful doing business? Mm-hmm. So I think that it comes down to a very, very, very common aspect of the human condition. It's across every career I've ever worked with, especially high achieving professionals is that we tend to focus a lot on our what. So what we say, what our training is, what our degree is in, what school we went to. We very rarely focus on the how. How we say something, how we communicate something, how we come across. 
And this is one of the, I think the most powerful studies that I share. I always share it when I do my doctor trainings. So they did a study on vocal power and they took doctors and they had them record 10 second voice tone clips. So in this clip, it was usually their name, their specialty and where they worked. So something like, hello, my name is Dr. Edwards and I specialize in oncology. I work at Children's Presbyterian Hospital. I mean, very simple like that. They took the clips and they warbled the words. So they took the clip and they made it sound like this. So you could hear the volume, the pace, the cadence, but not the actual words being said. And this is interesting for doctors because doctors focus a lot on the what, right? Having the right answer, diagnosing correctly, the words they're using, right? Having all the words be right. So then they had people listen to these voice tone clips and they asked them to rate these doctors on warmth and competence. And these traits are really important for a lot of reasons, specifically our charisma. So warmth, how relatable and friendly you are, and competence, how smart you are. Now imagine this for a second. You're given a clip of gobbledygook, and you're asked, how smart is this doctor? How friendly is this doctor? You think you can't do it, but you actually can. They found the doctors with the lowest competence and warmth ratings had the highest rate of malpractice lawsuits. Now this indicates something very, very powerful that we might not sue doctors based on their skill level. We might sue doctors based on our perception of their skill level. And we make that perception before we hear them actually say something competent. So what you say is very important, but how you come across your first impression, where you put your hands, your body language, the authenticity of your smile, your voice tone, and voice tone is often a signal of our confidence, is a huge aspect in our efficacy. It's not just for people to like us. It actually helps our patients heal. And they have proven this. There was a really interesting study with physical therapists. I love studies. I won't go into too many of them, but they found hey, that- show to talk about. <laughs> I guess that's true. You get a bunch of doctors they, listen to studies. So. so they had physical therapists do body language training. And they found that the physical therapists, after the body language training, their patients had faster healing rates. So this is not just for you. It's not just for your business side. It's also for your patients. And so my goal for you on this podcast is to not think of the business side and the medical side as separate, but actually they are one and the same. And if you focus on them as one and the same, both will get better. Powerful stuff. And my last question to you then is, before we roll out then is, is how do you become more likable? Like I'm talking about likable with your peers, likable with your patients, administration without being a pushover, right? Because that's everybody's fear. If I'm too nice to everyone. They're going to take that as a sign of weakness. How do we get over past that? You're right. I don't even like the word nice, right? Nice is not even seen as a wholly powerful or likable trait these days. So actually what I want you to think about is the biggest mistake that I think people have made, or at least I've read in people's skills books. The reason I wrote my book was because I could not find a people intelligence book, a PQ book that wasn't written by an extrovert. I am actually not an extrovert. And so I needed to learn as a book smart, obsessed with IQ person who is an ambivert, how can I be likable without just pretending to be a bubbly extrovert? That's not me. So my big piece of advice is you should not have to pretend to be an extrovert to be likable. And often people think of nice as extroverted. What I actually want you to do over the next few weeks is think about what is your unique brand of charisma. Charisma comes in lots of different flavors. Think about the difference between Steve Jobs, introverted, quiet, powerful observer. When he spoke, people listened versus Mother Teresa kind, compassionate, empathetic versus 
let's say President Obama, very extroverted, much more charismatic in a talkative kind of a way, much more extroverted. They all are charismatic people. You describe all of those people as charismatic, but in a very, very different way. And so I would think about what is your brand of charisma? Is it one-on-one rapport? Is it big conferences and lecturing from stage? Is it storytelling? Is it asking the right questions and you not talking a lot, but listening to what other people say? Is it compassion or empathy? What is your social superpower? Because everyone has a different one. That's the one that you should double down on. That's the one that you should be leveraging as much as possible. And that's why I am a big fan of your book, Vanessa Van Edwards, Captivate the Science of Succeeding with People. I oftentimes said, and I think we said this before we started recording, is that the way how I judge how well a great book is, is if I can actually start taking action with your book. And I've realized that I have some social anxiety. So I really love the way in which you describe, like you said, embracing your strengths, realizing what doesn't work for you, and just really going all in on what really works for you. So thank you so much, because it's actually started to affect my life. So I really, really appreciate that. Oh my gosh. I am so, so honored. And for anyone who's listening, who's helping others, it is my mission to make that easier. So I want to make the people part of helping people as easy as possible. I love that. I love that. Vanessa Van Edwards, thank you so much for coming on Docs Outside the Box. Many wishes to you. Best of luck to you and your team. Keep doing great work. Thanks so much. 